And now I want to introduce you to uh, Dr. E. Hill, who is professor of New Testament at Reform Seminary in Orlando. Chuck, are you on the line? I'm on the line, Lincoln. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. We've just listened to an interview with Mike Kruger, where we've talked a little bit about the canon, and we've talked through some of his books, The Heresy of Orthodoxy and Canon Revisited and the Question of the Canon, and tried to bring the brothers up to speed on some of the debates that are out there today on the development of the canon and the recognition of the canon by the early church. But uh, I want to talk with you about uh, some of the books that you have written uh, along related lines, and especially this most recent one responding to Bart Ehrman's uh, book on the deity of Christ. But I want the folks here to get to know you a little bit, so I want to give them a little background about you. Chuck Hill, you'll see his writings under the name Charles E. Hill or sometimes C.E. Hill. Uh, is a graduate of Cambridge University. He taught at Northwestern College in Iowa. Uh, he is an expert in the Johannine Corpus, and as I've already mentioned, he is what used to be called a patristic scholar, what is now more often called a, a scholar of early Christian studies, and is widely recognized in that field. Uh, he has been uh, teaching at RTS Orlando for a number of years, he is a Henry Luce Fellow in Theology and is a member of the prestigious New Testament Studies Society uh, and uh, has pursued undergraduate training in fine art. You may find that interesting. Uh, he actually worked as a commercial artist before he entered into theological and professional studies. He is a prolific author. Back in 2001, uh, he produced a volume called Regnum Chilorum, Patterns of Millennial Thought in the Early Church, and uh, immediately uh, became, along with Brian Daly, one of the go-to guys in what the early church taught about eschatology. So if, if you know anything in that field, you have to know Chuck Hill, and you have to know Brian Daly's work. Uh, he then followed that up with an Oxford University Press volume, called the Johannine Corpus in the early church, and since then has uh, contributed uh, to a number of works, including co-authoring uh, with Mike Kruger a book called The Early Text of the New Testament that came out from Oxford University Press in 2012. But one particular book that I want to talk with you about today is his book, it's Oxford University Press 2010, Who Chose the Gospels? Probing the Great Gospel Conspiracy. So why don't you tell us first, Chuck, what is the Great Gospel Conspiracy? And then tell us how you uh, rejoin that in your book, Who Chose the Gospels? Okay, well, thanks, Ligon. After that introduction, I feel like I ought to retire now. But, <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah, the Who Chose the Gospels, the, the Probing the Great Gospel Conspiracy, the conspiracy that I'm, I'm talking about, and it's kind of a running theme throughout the book, uh, I sort of, it's a playful uh, theme, uh, playful in my mind, but uh, I think it's, it's, it is a very serious thing. That is, there is a kind of a conspiracy mentality out there, uh, not only in, you might say, the popular level 
of what we get in the popular media about uh, how we got the Bible. But it's uh, the, the alarming thing is that this that, that the the popularizers of this view or the, this conspiracy or this myth sound a lot like the scholars, uh, or I should say, the scholars sound a lot like the uh, uh, the popularizers out there. The, the the conspiracy or the myth that I that I take up in the book is basically the myth that uh, we got our Bible our, our Bible today from the 4th century. You know, the books were not chosen until the 4th century. There seems to be this this kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, this aura around the, the Council of Nicaea and Constantine the Great. Uh, people seem to have this idea that uh, the Council of Nicaea decided on the canon. Well, there's really nothing in the, the Council of Nicaea that we that we know of that had to do with, with uh finalizing the canon or setting the canon or anything. But this this is how the, the kind of myth has, has gone, not only from Da Vinci Code, but but even in more more academic sources. And of course it's perceived as uh, the canon of the of the Bible has been perceived as being a, a political thing, uh foisted on the church by this council and by Constantine who needed unity throughout his empire and so forth. So I, I take that as a that uh, more or less that popular idea that that myth that's out there, which is a, in essence a conspiracy theory, and I show the actual scholarly uh, underpinnings of that. The scholars like Bart Ehrman and Elaine Pagels and and uh, even people like Helmut Kester and others are you might say the, the sponsors uh, of this myth. And I don't do much, do very much with the popular level. I do more with the, what the scholars actually say. And so it's in a, the book is an attempt to take on that entire myth, that conspiracy myth, and, uh, take it apart little by little, uh, particularly with regard to the Gospels. And I chose the Gospels because it's, it, you know, for one reason, it's easier to, to, to do that, to focus on the Gospels than on the entire New Testament canon. Uh, and the Gospels have always been the focus, you know, for studies of Jesus and introduction, introducing people to Christianity. So I uh, focused on the Gospels. A lot of what I say in there could be applied to the rest of the New Testament. But uh, that's that's the, the gist of it, and I can certainly go into how you know what what else is in in the book and how I do that, but the whole idea is to take apart that common myth uh I would say it's it's almost like uh it's become one of our cultural myths today uh it's so prevalent uh in universities in the media the idea that we you know only got our bible in in the fourth century from these from these uh uh roman empire loving bishops. And so I take that apart in the book and show how really early we have a notion of a four-gospel canon, that these four gospels were set apart from all others and regarded as authentic, and they, they appear everywhere. Uh, the heretics quote them, and the orthodox quote them, and, well, I can go on and on, but uh, I'll leave that as an introduction.
Well, uh, let, let me say just for the, for the brothers that are gathered here that don't have their noses down in this literature like you have for many years and very thankfully are still working in this area, I, I, I think it's important to say that when you go in and you work with the primary sources, it's not that, you, that what you articulate in your book is sort of, you know, that, that, you know 50% of the sources, per, you know, sort of support your view and then 50% of the sources uh, support the other side. It's that what you have in, in uh, a lot of scholarship, as you point out, Bart Ehrman, Lee McDonald, and others, is a supposition that the majority party winners of history uh, whitewashed the history of early Christianity, and what we have in the fourth century is the product of suppression. And it starts with that idea, and then it deduces from that idea a particular interpretation of the earlier material for which there is not a single shred of evidence. When you go into the evidence, all the evidence is on your side. Uh, and one of the things you do in that book, Chuck, is you, you drive the picture of the, the canonical Gospels. You inductively produce evidence for that going back to Papias. I mean, it's early in the second century that you are producing uh, evidence for that. You want to talk about that just a little bit? Because it's quite remarkable what you show in the book. Well, uh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think that the evidence is quite remarkable and, and quite overwhelming. It's, uh, it's astonishing how we, we get sidetracked and enamored with things that are new or things that are different, things that are uh, things that are outside the box, and that's what people tend to focus on. You know, every time a new gospel, a uh, new old gospel is considered or is, is uh, discovered, uh, you know, the, the press goes wild and everything. Uh, but when you look at the evidence, the the evidence for the four is is so dominant that it's uh, it, it's shocking how how we've gotten off base, I, I guess you'd say. And the, you, you mentioned uh, Papias, Papias of Hierapolis, a very early writer. He's, he's writing probably in the 120s, maybe at the latest 130, uh, possibly as early as 110, but we don't know exactly. But the thing with, with Papias, uh, at points he is referring back to tradition that he learned uh, from others. And so this material goes back a ways from when he's writing and he quotes uh, at a point at at some points in his work uh the teaching or the tradition of certain elders now and now all this is is in Eusebius's uh, church history from the 4th century so it's uh, Getting our, our, our handle around Papias is, is a little bit dodgy because all we have of him is, is quotations from other people. But we've known for a very long time that, that Papias clearly talks about Matthew and Mark, and he gives tradition that he learned about Matthew and Mark, and that's probably 10, 20, to 15, you know, 15 uh, 20, 30 years earlier. And this tradition about Matthew and Mark shows that from at least around, right around the turn of the second century, uh, 
Christians in Asia Minor were talking about their authoritative gospel sources, uh, sources for the life of Jesus. Matthew, one was known by, by Matthew and one was known by Mark, the name of Mark. Mark's is attributed to the teaching of Peter. Uh, in that quotation where Eusebius gives this material, he doesn't say anything about Luke or John. And some of the scholars have just assumed that Papias didn't say anything about Luke or John, or if he did, it may have been embarrassing. And so that's why uh, Eusebius didn't produce it. Well, uh, I've argued that there is a, another place in Eusebius's writings where he is actually quoting, or paraphrasing rather, paraphrasing what uh, Papias said about Luke and John, also a little bit more about Matthew and Mark. But he simply didn't attribute it. It's anonymous tradition. So that's that's part of the argument, and a lot of everybody, not everybody, I should say, uh, accepts that argument. But if you do accept that argument, and I think it's pretty compelling, uh, Papias talked about not only Matthew and Mark, but also Luke and John, particularly John. And it's clear that in this tradition, John is conceived of as the last of the Gospels. And this is in uh, Eusebius' Church History, Book 3, Chapter 24, in case anybody there has a copy of Eusebius. There you go. Uh, but if you tie that all together, you have, you have uh, Papias, early in the 2nd century, uh, commenting on these four Gospels, and they already seem to be a unit. Uh, John is the last. Now, I would say that even if that is putting that evidence together, I don't think that we can say it's established historical fact. I wish we could. I think it's very compelling, but the it is anonymous in Eusebius. But another thing I would say about it is that if we if we don't accept that that, that you know a four gospel canon, so to speak, or a, a notion, at least a notional canon of four gospels. If we don't accept that it was around since the time of Papias, very early years of the second century, in fact, the time of his elder, right around 100, 110, then we almost have to posit that the notion of a four-gospel canon took root about then in order to account for all the other evidence. So when we look at the rest of the second century, we see these four gospels so prominent in the usage of the church, and not only in the Orthodox Church, but even the heretics uh, have to use them, as Irenaeus puts it. Uh, we, we see it so early and so uh, strong, so repeated, that we, you'd almost have to uh, theorize that a four-gospel canon was known that early. So that's that's part of what I do in the book as well, is is trace it back, uh, the notion of, of these four Gospels and their prominence, all the way back to the very early 2nd century. And uh, Tell yeah, us briefly, Chuck, other. what you, you and Mike were doing uh, with your book, The Early Texts of the New Testament, and just give us, you know, give us a takeaway or two that we need to learn from, uh, from your study in that area. Okay, sure. Yeah, the... the the book, the early texts of the New Testament, uh, a book, a book that, as you said, Mike and I edited. Uh, we have like 
21 scholars, I think it is, uh, who contribute to this book, uh, all experts in their field, and uh, by no means are all of them evangelicals. A number of them are, but we have a number of them who are not. Uh, some, you might say, are, would call themselves liberals. Some, some are Catholics. But they're all experts in the field of early, early textual studies in one way or another. And the idea behind the book was to explore and to, to summarize what we can now say about the earliest uh, transcription of the New Testament uh, books, the earliest uh, process of copying. Uh, just in terms of background, Mike and I were concerned because it has become almost uh, a commonplace in uh, New Testament studies and the early Christian studies to say that the early text of the New Testament was wild and free and uh, chaotic, uh, the early period of copying, before we get to about the 4th century. Uh, and so the, the takeaway from that view was basically, well, we may have a pretty good idea of what what some of the early texts said, but we can only go so early. And before those, before our manuscripts, we really don't know what the New Testament books looked like. So there, it introduces a large degree of doubt between the originals and our first copies. So we wanted to get uh, a bunch of experts together, and not just write it ourselves. You know, two RTS professors writing something. We wanted to get experts from all over to weigh in on these various aspects. So the, the book's divided in three sections. First, uh, the first section is more or less on uh, writing and book culture in uh, the early period. What, what did it mean to write a book? How did scribes work? Uh, uh, what can we tell from the actual artifacts of the New Testament, the, the actual manuscripts themselves about the about the Christianity? The, the, and then the main part of the book, section two, ha, breaks down the New Testament into either book by book or corpus by corpus, uh, each gospel, and then the Pauline corpus, Catholic epistles, Revelation, and Acts in there too. Uh, and we have an expert looking at the, the early papyri, basically, of these books. Prior to the fourth, great fourth century unctual manuscripts that maybe a lot of people have heard about, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Sinaiticus, and so forth. Before that, what is our evidence uh, adding up to now? And so we have a, a fresh review of all the evidence for each of these books. And I would say that I, I try to try to come up with uh, an upshot or a summary. First, you have to say each each corpus is a little bit different. You can't say exactly the same because we don't have the same attestation, let's say, for Second Peter or for James as we do for John. But the evidence is stacking up to show uh, just how um, wrong that earlier picture of the, new, of the early period as free is. Uh, the more early papyri are, are discovered and analyzed, the more we see they, they cohere very well together and they are strong precursors, you might say, of, of Codex Vaticanus in particular and Codex Sinaiticus of the 4th century. This just points to a, a much 
greater amount of stability in the textual transmission process than most scholars have allowed. So I'd, I'd say, you know, I can go into a lot more detail, but that's the main takeaway, that uh, I think the book demonstrates a, a much higher degree of stability in the copying process than scholars uh, have, have normally wanted to say up to this point. Bart Ehrman has uh, just produced a book called How Jesus Became God. And uh, you and Simon Gathercole and Michael Byrd and a number of other scholars have written a response to that book called How God Became Jesus. And, uh, and tell us a little bit about your part uh, in that particular response to Bart Ehrman. And just take us into that whole issue as pastors. Uh, what do we need to know to help our students that are heading off to Duke and North Carolina and Vanderbilt and going in a religion class and probably going to hear Bart Ehrman's line spouted as if it were gospel truth, so-called? Uh, and just just walk us through a little bit what you did and what your book does. Okay. Yeah, great. I, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I think it probably will be timely uh, because Bart Ehrman's books are always uh, pushed very hard and, and uh, become very popular. Well, the book, as you said, is a response to Bart's book. My section, uh, I did two chapters responding to two chapters in Ehrman's book, uh, I did the chapters post-New Testament. So he's he goes through the New Testament material and the, and the backgrounds to the New Testament, and then he goes from the New Testament basically to the 4th century councils, Nicaea and Chalcedon, and, and shows how we got from the New Testament views of Jesus to the 4th century uh, creeds uh, that define his person even even more. Uh, definitely. And so his argument is that we have a progression, an evolution in Christology from uh, basically from low to high. Uh, that's pretty typical, that's standard, that's pretty ho-hum as far as uh, what uh, non-evangelical scholars would say, most scholars would say. Uh, but he has he has his own twists on a number of things. Uh, he actually comes down earlier than he used to. He used to say that uh, uh, Christians didn't believe Jesus was fully was even was even God until John wrote in the late first century. Uh, but he's had to retract a little bit and come back. He now says that Christians believe Jesus was divine uh, right after they believed he was resurrected. So according to him, you know, he thinks some Christians had some hallucinations. Uh, about the risen Jesus, and they deduced he'd been raised from the dead and elevated to deity at, at the Father's right hand. But from there, you, you just had a. From there, he muddles things and introduces the idea of uh, degrees of divinity, you might say. And you can find in all kinds of ancient sources this this sort of thing. But you have an uh, an, elevate, uh, an a man elevated to divinity, and eventually Jesus becomes. Uh, he, he was he was thought to have been elevated at the time of his, of his resurrection. And others thought, no, 
he was probably God from the time of his baptism. And others thought, um, maybe from his conception. And then others, like John, thought, um, maybe from eternity. And so Christology rises in, in that way. Well, I'm trying to boil this down. Um, I think what what you see is essentially a scholar imposing his grid, his historical grid, upon the New Testament evidence. And I think it's just as simple as that. Uh, Ehrman is an excellent writer, an excellent communicator. He has great skills, and he knows a lot. And so he's able to string together a, a lot of material and make it look very convincing. But in the end, when you read it closely, uh, you see that he's he's come to the evidence with a grid, and he's imposed that. He's tried to find ways to work his grid into the evidence, you might say. Um, and if, uh, if I could sort of encapsulate uh, his view of the New Testament evidence versus versus ours, uh, he thinks he can find in some pre-Pauline material embedded in Paul's epistles some some uh, early confessions that don't regard Jesus as divine, only as resurrected. Well, I say to that, um, he can't date those any earlier than the ones that assume an incarnational Christology, like Philippians 2, uh, 6 through 11, uh, Christ being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself, became a servant, and then was elevated by God, uh, highly exalted. Well, that assumes that the Christ is already divine, he's already God. And you can't get any earlier than that uh, in the New Testament. So essentially I would say he's imposed his grid uh, upon the New Testament evidence and not simply let it speak for itself. Uh, Simon Gathercole participated with you in that book. I mean, Simon is another scholar that the Twin Lakes uh, Fellowship needs to know of. Simon is a fine evangelical scholar at the University of Cambridge, believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. You don't find that very often at his level of the academy and is an able apologist along with Pete Williams of Tyndall House uh, for the historicity of uh, scripture, for the authority of scripture, for the truth of uh, robust Apostles' Creed, uh, Christianity, and uh, Pete, and Simon are names that uh, folks need to know as well. Uh, Chuck, we so appreciate you spending time with us today at the Twin Lakes Fellowship, and we look forward to you being present with us sometime. That would be great. Uh, I would enjoy that. And I'll look forward to talking with you soon. I owe you a phone call. So uh, I'll, I'll be in touch uh, as soon as the fellowship is over and I can get free. Okay. Well, you all enjoy yourselves a lot there. Thank you. Let's give him a, a round of applause. Thank you so much, Chuck. God bless you. And you. Goodbye. Goodbye.